This episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter with some bunny slippers from bunnyslippers.com. Look cool like Chris Knight from Real Genius. You know what? They've got all kinds of cool slippers, all kinds of novelty slippers of all sorts. If you like horror movies, they've got horror movie stuff. If you like fantasy, you like science fiction, they've got that. They've got sports stuff. They've got all kinds of stuff. They've got slippers you can plug into USB things. Anyway, bunnyslippers.com. They are the sponsor of the show. And if you live someplace like in Australia, New Zealand, someplace where it's warm this time of year, they've got cool t-shirts at founditemclothing.com. Check out founditemclothing.com. I'm wearing one right now. Can't see it, but it's it's a shirt that Jeff Bridges wears in the Big Lebowski. Check it out. It's pretty cool. Based off of a Japanese baseball t-shirt. Anyway, so uh, this month we're going to be doing Jack London stories. So check that out. And there will be part of the calendar and what will be coming out listed in the show notes. So check that out right now. And also, why not check out Dave's Corner of the Universe.com? It's Dave's Corner. You've heard him on the podcast. You'll hear him in an upcoming thing that we're doing about uh, underground secret bases and fan fiction and cool things like that. Um, listen for the episode of, uh, I think it's D U G S. Uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. Check that out when it becomes available. I'll be hosting the first few episodes, of course, on this feed, so you can always check that out or chuck it out. And, you know, it's your podcast feed. Trim it how you feel. Anyway, uh, money for the shows, various shows. We'll get them their own podcast feeds. If you want to listen to PGTTCM just by itself or Black Clock Audio Tales just by itself, Zach Ferguson has his own, but occasionally we're going to throw out Articulate Warblers. And also, probably we're going to have some of these shows by Dave from Dave. And hopefully he'll still do some Dave's Corner of the Universe stuff for us. But, you know, I love producing podcasts. So if you've got a podcast idea, track me down and we'll do something. Especially if you're in the Portland metro area. Um... I'm working with Zach, and he's over in Brighton, England, and, you know, it's working out so far so good. But, yeah, no, um, let us know if you got something that would be of interest to us. So, yeah, on with some Jack London. Here we go. And why not check out Monster Kid Radio and keep an eye and an ear out for Twisted Pulp. Twisted Pulp. Here we go. Jack London, right now. Domain. The Seawolf by Jack London Chapter 33 We waited all day for Wolf Larsen to come ashore. It was an intolerable period of anxiety. Each moment one or the other of us cast expectant glances towards the ghost, but he did not come. He did not even appear on deck. Perhaps it is his headache, I said. I left him lying on the poop. He may lie there all night. I think I'll go and see. Maud looked entreaty at me. It's all right, I assured her. I shall take the revolvers. You know, I collected every weapon on board. But there are his arms, his hands, his terrible, terrible hands, she objected. And then she cried, Oh, Humphrey, I am afraid of him. Don't go. Please, don't go. She rested her hand appealingly on mine and sent my pulse fluttering. 
My heart was surely in my eyes for a moment. The dear and lovely woman, and she was so much the woman, clinging and appealing, sunshine and dew to my manhood, rooting it deeper and sending through it the sap of a new strength. I was for putting my arm around her as when in the midst of the seal herd, but I considered and refrained. I shall not take any risks, I said. I'll merely peep over the bow and see. She pressed my hand earnestly and let me go. But the space on deck where I had left him lying was vacant. He had evidently gone below. That night we stood alternate watches, one of us sleeping at a time, for there was no telling what Wolf Larsen might do. He was certainly capable of anything. The next day we waited, and the next, and still he made no sign. These headaches of his, these attacks, Maud said on the afternoon of the fourth day. Perhaps he is ill, very ill. He may be dead, or dying, was her afterthought when she had waited some time for me to speak. Better so, I answered. But think, Humphrey, a fellow creature in his last lonely hour? Perhaps, I suggested. Yes, even perhaps, she acknowledged. But we do not know. It would be terrible if he were. I could never forgive myself. We must do something. Perhaps, I suggested again. I waited, smiling inwardly at the woman of her which compelled a solicitude for Wolf Larsen of all creatures. Where was her solicitude for me, I thought, for me whom she had been afraid to have merely peep aboard? She was too subtle not to follow the trend of my silence, and she was as direct as she was subtle. You must go aboard, Humphrey, and find out, she said, and if you want to laugh at me, you have my consent and forgiveness. I arose obediently and went down to the beach. Do be careful, she called after me. I waved my arm from the forecastle head and dropped down to the deck. Aft I walked to the cabin companion, where I contented myself with hailing below. Wolf Larsen answered, and as he started to ascend the stairs, I cocked my revolver. I displayed it openly during our conversation, but he took no notice of it. He appeared the same physically as when last I saw him, but he was gloomy and silent. In fact, the few words we spoke could hardly be called a conversation. I did not inquire why he had not been ashore, nor did he ask why I had not come aboard. His head was all right again, he said, and so, without further parley, I left him. Maud received my report with obvious relief, and the sight of smoke which later rose in the galley put her in a more cheerful mood. The next day and the next we saw the galley smoke rising, and sometimes we caught glimpses of him on the poop. But that was all. He made no attempt to come ashore. This we knew, for we still maintained our night watches. We were waiting for him to do something, to show his hand, so to say, and his inaction puzzled and worried us. A week of this passed by. We had no other interest than Wolf Larsen, and his presence weighed us down with an apprehension which prevented us from doing any of the little things we had planned. But at the end of the week, the smoke ceased coming from the galley, and he no longer showed himself on the poop. I could see Maud's solicitude again growing, though she timidly, and even proudly, I think, forebode a repetition of her request. After all, what censure could be put upon her? 
She was divinely altruistic, and she was a woman. Besides, I was myself aware of hurt at thought of this man, whom I had tried to kill, dying alone with his fellow creatures so near. He was right. The code of my group was stronger than I. The fact that he had hands, feet, and a body shaped somewhat like mine constituted a claim which I could not ignore. So I did not wait a second time for Maud to send me. I discovered that we stood in need of condensed milk and marmalade, and announced that I was going aboard. I could see that she wavered. She even went so far as to murmur that they were non-essentials, and that my trip after them might be inexpedient. And as she had followed the trend of my silence, she now followed the trend of my speech, and she knew that I was going aboard, not because of condensed milk and marmalade, but because of her and her anxiety, which she knew she had failed to hide. I took off my shoes when I gained the forecastle head, and went noiselessly aft in my stocking feet. Nor did I call this time from the top of the companionway. Cautiously descending, I found the cabin deserted. The door to his stateroom was closed. At first I thought of knocking, then I remembered my ostensible errand and resolved to carry it out. Carefully avoiding noise, I lifted the trap door in the floor and set it to one side. The slop chest, as well as the provisions, was stored in a lazarette, and I took advantage of the opportunity to lay in a stock of underclothing. As I emerged from the lazarette, I heard sounds in Wolf Larsen's stateroom. I crouched and listened. The doorknob rattled. Furtively, instinctively, I slunk back behind the table and drew and cocked my revolver. The door swung open, and he came forth. Never had I seen so profound a despair as that which I saw on his face. The face of Wolf Larsen the fighter, the strong man, the indomitable one. For all the world like a woman wringing her hands, he raised his clenched fists and groaned. One fist unclosed, and the open palm swept across his eyes as though brushing away cobwebs. God! God, he groaned, and the clenched fists were raised again to the infinite despair with which his throat vibrated. It was horrible. I was trembling all over, and I could feel the shivers running up and down my spine and the sweat standing out on my forehead. Surely there can be little in this world more awful than the spectacle of a strong man in the moment when he is utterly weak and broken. But Wolf Larsen regained control of himself by an exertion of his remarkable will. And it was an exertion. His whole frame shook with the struggle. He resembled a man on the verge of a fit. His face strove to compose itself, writhing and twisting in the effort till he broke down again. Once more the clenched fists went upward and he groaned. He caught his breath once or twice and sobbed. Then he was successful. I could have thought him the old Wolf Larsen, and yet there was in his movements a vague suggestion of weakness and indecision. He started for the companionway and stepped forward quite as I had been accustomed to see him do. And yet again in his very walk there seemed a suggestion of weakness and indecision. I was now concerned with fear for myself. The open trap lay directly in his path, and his discovery of it would lead instantly to his discovery of me. 
I was angry with myself for being caught in so cowardly a position, crouching on the floor. There was yet time. I rose swiftly to my feet, and I know, quite unconsciously, assumed a defiant attitude. He took no notice of me, nor did he notice the open trap. Before I could grasp the situation or act, he had walked right into the trap. One foot was descending into the opening, while the other foot was just on the verge of beginning the uplift. But when the descending foot missed the solid flooring and felt vacancy beneath, it was the old Wolf Larsen and the tiger muscles that made the falling body spring across the opening, even as it fell, so that he struck on his chest and stomach with arms outstretched on the floor of the opposite side. The next instant he had drawn up his legs and rolled clear. But he rolled into my marmalade and underclothes and against the trap door. The expression on his face was one of complete comprehension. But before I could guess what he had comprehended, he had dropped the trap door into place, closing the lazarette. Then I understood. He thought he had me inside. Also, he was blind, blind as a bat. I watched him, breathing carefully so that he should not hear me. He stepped quickly to his stateroom. I saw his hand miss the doorknob by an inch, quickly fumble for it, and find it. This was my chance. I tiptoed across the cabin and to the top of the stairs. He came back dragging a heavy sea chest, which he deposited on top of the trap. Not content with this, he fetched a second chest and placed it on top of the first. Then he gathered up the marmalade and underclothes and put them on the table. When he started up the companionway, I retreated, silently rolling over on top of the cabin. He shoved the slide partway back and rested his arms on it, his body still in the companionway. His attitude was of one looking forward the length of the schooner, or staring rather, for his eyes were fixed and unblinking. I was only five feet away and directly in what should have been his line of vision. It was uncanny. I felt myself a ghost, what of my invisibility. I waved my hand back and forth of course without effect, but when the moving shadow fell across his face, I saw at once that he was susceptible to the impression. His face became more expectant and tense as he tried to analyze and identify the impression. He knew that he had responded to something from without, that his sensibility had been touched by a changing something in his environment, but what it was he could not discover. I ceased waving my hand so that the shadow remained stationary. He slowly moved his head back and forth under it and turned from side to side, now in the sunshine, now in the shade, feeling the shadow as it were, testing it by sensation. I too was busy trying to reason out how he was aware of the existence of so intangible a thing as a shadow. If it were his eyeballs only that were affected, or if his optic nerve were not wholly destroyed, the explanation was simple. If otherwise, then the only conclusion I could reach was that the sensitive skin recognized the difference of temperature between shade and sunshine. Or perhaps, who can tell? It was that fabled sixth sense which conveyed to him the lumen feel of an object close at hand. 
Giving over his attempt to determine the shadow, he stepped on deck and started forward, walking with a swiftness and confidence which surprised me. And still there was that hint of the feebleness of the blind in his walk. I knew it now for what it was. To my amused chagrin, he discovered my shoes on the forecastle head and brought them back with him to the galley. I watched him build the fire and set about cooking food for himself. Then I stole into the cabin for my marmalade and underclothes, slipped back past the galley, and climbed down to the beach to deliver my barefoot report. End of chapter 33 The Sea Wolf by Jack London Chapter 34 It's too bad the ghost has lost her masts. Why, we could sail away in her. Don't you think we could, Humphrey? I sprang excitedly to my feet. I wonder, I wonder, I repeated, pacing up and down. Maud's eyes were shining with anticipation as they followed me. She had such faith in me and the thought of it was so much added power. I remembered Michelet's, to man, woman is as the earth was, to her legendary son. He has but to fall down and kiss her breast, and he is strong again. For the first time, I knew the wonderful truth of his words. Why, I was living them. Maud was all this to me, an unfailing source of strength and courage. I had but to look at her, or think of her, and be strong again. It can be done, it can be done, I was thinking and asserting aloud. What men have done, I can do, and if they have never done this before, still I can do it. What, for goodness sake, Maud demanded. Do be merciful, what is it you can do? We can do it, I amended. Why, nothing else than put the masts back into the ghost and sail away. Humphrey, she exclaimed and I felt as proud of my conception as if it were already a fact accomplished. But how is it possible to be done? she asked. I don't know, was my answer. I know only that I am capable of doing anything these days. I smiled proudly at her, too proudly, for she dropped her eyes and was for the moment silent. But there is Captain Larson, she objected, blind and helpless. I answered promptly, waving him aside as a straw. But those terrible hands of his, you know how he leaped across the opening of the lazarette. And you know also how I crept about and avoided him, I contended gaily. And lost your shoes. You'd hardly expect them to avoid Wolf Larsen without my feet inside of them. We both laughed and then went seriously to work constructing the plan whereby we were to step the mast of the ghost and return to the world. I remembered hazily the physics of my school days, while the last few months had given me practical experience with mechanical purchases. I must say, though, when we walked down to the ghost to inspect more closely the task before us, that the sight of the great masts lying in the water almost disheartened me. Where were we to begin? If there had been one mast standing, something high up to which to fasten blocks and tackles, but there was nothing. It reminded me of the problem of lifting oneself by one's bootstraps. I understood the mechanics of levers, but where was I to get a fulcrum? 
There was the mainmast, fifteen inches in diameter at what was now the butt, still sixty-five feet in length, and weighing, I roughly calculated, at least three thousand pounds. And then came the foremast, larger in diameter, and weighing surely thirty-five hundred pounds. Where was I to begin? Maud stood silently by my side while I evolved in my mind the contrivance known among sailors as shears. But, though known to sailors, I invented it there on Endeavor Island. By crossing and lashing the ends of two spars, and then elevating them in the air like an inverted V, I could get a point above the deck to which to make fast my hoisting tackle. To this hoisting tackle I could, if necessary, attach a second hoisting tackle. And then there was the windlass. Maud saw that I had achieved a solution, and her eyes warmed sympathetically. "'What are you going to do?' she asked. "'Clear that raffle,' I answered, pointing to the tangled wreckage overside. Ah, the decisiveness, the very sound of the words was good in my ears. Clear that raffle. Imagine so salty a phrase on the lips of the Humphrey Van Waden of a few months gone. There must have been a touch of the melodramatic in my posing voice, for Maud smiled. Her appreciation of the ridiculous was keen, and in all things she unerringly saw and felt where it existed the touch of sham the overshading, the overtone. It was this which had given poise and penetration to her own work and made her of worth to the world. The serious critic, with the sense of humor and the power of expression, must inevitably command the world's ear. And so it was that she had commanded. Her sense of humor was really the artist's instinct for proportion. I'm sure I've heard it before, somewhere in books, she murmured gleefully. I had an instinct for proportion myself, and I collapsed forthwith, descending from the dominant pose of a master of matter to a state of humble confusion, which was, to say the least, very miserable. Her hand leapt out at once to mine. I'm so sorry, she said. No need to be, I gulped. It does me good. There's too much of the schoolboy in me all of which is neither here nor there. What we've got to do is actually and literally to clear that raffle. If you'll come with me in the boat, we'll get to work and straighten things out. When the top men clear the raffle with their clasp knives in their teeth, she quoted at me, and for the rest of the afternoon we made merry over our labor. Her task was to hold the boat in position while I worked at the tangle. And such a tangle! Halyards, sheets, guys, downhauls, shrouds, stays, all washed about and back and forth and through and twined and knotted by the sea. I cut no more than was necessary, and what with passing the long ropes under and around the booms and masts of unweaving the halyards and sheets, of coiling down in the boat and uncoiling in order to pass through another knot in the bite, I was soon wet to the skin. The sails did require some cutting, and the canvas, heavy with water, tried my strength severely, but I succeeded before nightfall in getting it all spread out on the beach to dry. 
we were both very tired when we knocked off for supper and we had done good work too though to the eye it appeared insignificant next morning with maud as able assistant i went into the hold of the ghost to clear the steps of the mast butts we had no more than begun work when the sound of my knocking and hammering brought wolf larsen hello below he cried down the open hatch the sound of his voice made maud quickly draw close to me as for protection and she rested one hand on my arm while we parlayed hello on deck i replied good morning to you what are you doing down there he demanded trying to scuttle my ship for me quite the opposite i'm repairing her was my answer but what in thunder are you repairing there was puzzlement in his voice why i'm getting everything ready for restepping the masts i replied easily as though it were the simplest project imaginable it seems as though you're standing on your own legs at last tump we heard him say and then for some time he was silent but i say hump he called down you can't do it oh yes i can i retorted i'm doing it now but this is my vessel my particular property what if i forbid you you forget i replied you were no longer the biggest bit of the ferment you were once and able to eat me as you were pleased to phrase it but there has been a diminishing and now i am able to eat you the yeast has grown stale he gave a short disagreeable laugh <laughs> i see you're working my philosophy back on me for all it's worth but don't make the mistake of underestimating me for your own good i warn you since when have you become a philanthropist i queried confess now in warning me for my own good that you were very consistent he ignored my sarcasm saying suppose i clap the hatch on now you won't fool me as you did in the lazarette wolf larsen i said sternly for the first time addressing him by this his most familiar name I am unable to shoot a helpless unresisting man. You have proved that to my satisfaction as well as yours. But I warn you now and not so much for your own good as for mine that I shall shoot you the moment you attempt a hostile act. I can shoot you now as I stand here, and if you are so minded, just go ahead and try to clap on that hatch. Nevertheless, I forbid you. I distinctly forbid your tampering with my ship. But man, I expostulated. You advance the fact that it is your ship as though it were a moral right. You have never considered moral rights in your dealings with others. You surely do not dream that I'll consider them in dealing with you. I had stepped underneath the open hatchway so that I could see him. The lack of expression on his face, so different from when I had watched him unseen, was enhanced by the unblinking staring eyes. It was not a pleasant face to look upon. And none so poor, not even hump, to do him reverence, he sneered. The sneer was holy in his voice. His face remained expressionless as ever. How do you do, Miss Brister? he said suddenly after a pause. I started. She had made no noise whatever, had not even moved. Could it be that some glimmer of vision remained to him, or that his vision was coming back? How do you do, Captain Larsen? 
she answered. Pray, how did you know I was here? Heard your breathing, of course. I say, Hump's improving. Don't you think so? I don't know, she answered, smiling at me. I have never seen him otherwise. You should have seen him before, then. Wolf Larsen in large doses, I murmured, before and after taking. I want to tell you again, Hump, he said threateningly, that you'd better leave things alone. But don't you care to escape as well as we? I asked incredulously. No, was his answer. I intend dying here. Well, we don't, I concluded defiantly, beginning again my knocking and hammering. End of chapter 34 The Sea Wolf by Jack London Chapter 35 Next day, the mast steps clear and everything in readiness, we started to get the two topmasts aboard. The main topmast was over 30 feet in length, the top foremast nearly 30, and it was of these that I intended making the shears. It was puzzling work. Fastening one end of a heavy tackle to the windlass, and with the other end fast to the butt of the fore topmast, I began to heave. Maud held the turn on the windlass and coiled down the slack. We were astonished at the ease with which the spar was lifted. It was an improved crank windlass, and the purchase it gave was enormous. Of course, what it gave us in power, we paid for in distance. As many times as it doubled my strength, that many times was doubled the length of rope I heaved in. The tackle dragged heavily across the rail, increasing its drag as the spar rose more and more out of the water, and the exertion on the windlass grew severe. But when the butt of the topmast was level with the rail, everything came to a standstill. I might have known it, I said impatiently. Now we have to do it all over again. Why not fasten the tackle part way down the mast? Maud suggested. It's what I should have done at first, I answered, hugely disgusted with myself. Slipping off a turn, I lowered the mast back into the water and fastened the tackle a third of the way down from the butt. In an hour, what of this and of rests between the heaving, I had hoisted it to the point where I could hoist no more. Eight feet of the butt was above the rail, and I was as far away as ever from getting the spar on board. I sat down and pondered the problem. It did not take long. I sprang jubilantly to my feet. Now I have it, I cried. I ought to make the tackle fast at the point of balance. And what we learn of this will serve us with everything else we have to hoist aboard. Once again, I undid all my work by lowering the mast into the water. But I miscalculated the point of balance, so that when I heaved, the top of the mast came up instead of the butt. Maud looked despair, but I laughed and said it would do just as well. Instructing her how to hold a turn and be ready to slack away at command, I laid hold of the mast with my hands and tried to balance it inboard across the rail. When I thought I had it, I cried to her to slack away, but the spar righted despite my efforts and dropped back toward the water. Again I heaved it up to its old position, for I had now another idea. I remembered the watch tackle, a small double and single block affair, and fetched it. While I was rigging it between the top of the spar and the opposite rail, Wolf Larsen came on the scene. 
we exchanged nothing more than good mornings, and though he could not see, he sat on the rail out of the way and followed by the sound all that I did. Again instructing Maud to slack away at the windlass when I gave the word, I proceeded to heave on the watch tackle. Slowly the mast swung in until it balanced at right angles across the rail, and then I discovered to my amazement that there was no need for Maud to slack away. In fact, the very opposite was necessary. Making the watch tackle fast, I hove on the windlass and brought in the mast inch by inch, till its top tilted down to the neck and finally its whole length lay on the deck. I looked at my watch. It was twelve o'clock. My back was aching sorely, and I felt extremely tired and hungry. And there on the deck was a single stick of timber to show for a whole morning's work. For the first time, I thoroughly realized the extent of the task before us. But I was learning. I was learning. The afternoon would show far more accomplished. And it did, for we returned at one o'clock, rested and strengthened by a hearty dinner. In less than an hour, I had the main topmast on deck, and I was constructing the shears. Lashing the two topmasts together, and making allowance for their unequal length, at the point of intersection, I attached the double block of the main throat halyards. This, with the single block and the throat halyards themselves, gave me a hoisting tackle. To prevent the butts of the masts from slipping on the deck, I nailed down thick cleats. Everything in readiness, I made a line fast to the apex of the shears and carried it directly to the windlass. I was growing to have faith in that windlass, for it gave me power beyond all expectation. As usual, Maud held the turn while I heaved. The shears rose in the air. Then I discovered I had forgotten guy ropes. This necessitated my climbing the shears, which I did twice, before I finished guying it fore and aft and to either side. Twilight had set in by the time this was accomplished. Wolf Larsen, who had sat about and listened all afternoon and never opened his mouth, had taken himself off to the galley and started his supper. I felt quite stiff across the small of my back, so much so that I straightened up with an effort and with pain. I looked proudly at my work. It was beginning to show. I was wild with desire, like a child with a new toy, to hoist something with my shears. I wish it weren't so late, I said. I'd like to see how it works. Don't be a glutton, Humphrey, Maud chided me. Remember, tomorrow is coming, and you're so tired now that you can hardly stand. And you? I said with sudden solicitude. You must be very tired. You have worked hard and nobly. I am proud of you, Maud. Not half so proud as I am of you, nor with half the reason. She answered, looking at me straight in the eyes for a moment with an expression in her own, and a dancing tremulous light which I had not seen before, and which gave me a pang of quick delight. I know not why, for I did not understand it. Then she dropped her eyes to lift them again, laughing. If our friends could see us now, she said, look at us. Have you ever paused for a moment to consider our appearance? Yes, I have considered yours frequently, I answered puzzling over what I had seen in her eyes, and puzzled by her sudden change of subject. Mercy, she cried, and what do I look like, pray? A scarecrow, I'm afraid, I replied. 
Just glance at your draggled skirts, for instance. Look at those three-cornered tears. And such a waste. It would not require a Sherlock Holmes to deduce that you have been cooking over a campfire to say nothing of trying out seal blubber. And to cap it all, that cap! And all that is the woman who wrote A Kiss Endured. She made me an elaborate and stately courtesy and said, As for you, sir, and yet through the five minutes of banter which followed, there was a serious something underneath the fun, which I could not but relate to the strange and fleeting expression I had caught in her eyes. What was it? Could it be that our eyes were speaking beyond the will of our speech? My eyes had spoken, I knew, until I had found the culprits out and silenced them. This had occurred several times, but had she seen the clamor in them and understood? And had her eyes so spoken to me? What else could that expression have meant? That dancing, tremulous light, and a something more which words could not describe. And yet it could not be. It was impossible. Besides, I was not skilled in the speech of eyes. I was only Humphrey Van Waden, a bookish fellow who loved. And to love, and to wait and win love, that surely was glorious enough for me. And thus I thought, even as we chaffed each other's appearance, until we arrived ashore, and there were other things to think about. It's a shame after working hard all day that we cannot have an uninterrupted night's sleep, I complained after supper. But there can be no danger now from a blind man, she queried. I shall never be able to trust him, I averred, and far less now that he is blind. The liability is that his part helplessness will make him more malignant than ever. I know what I shall do tomorrow, the first thing. Run out a light anchor and kedge the schooner off the beach. And each night when we come ashore in the boat, Mr. Wolf Larsen will be left a prisoner on board. So this will be the last night we have to stand watch, and because of that it will go the easier. We were awake early, and just finishing breakfast as daylight came. Oh, Humphrey, I heard Maud cry in dismay and suddenly stop. I looked at her. She was gazing at the ghost. I followed her gaze, but could see nothing unusual. She looked at me, and I looked inquiry back. The shears, she said, and her voice trembled. I had forgotten their existence. I looked again, but could not see them. If he has... I muttered savagely. She put her hand sympathetically on mine and said, You will have to begin over again. Oh, believe me, my anger means nothing. I could not hurt a fly. I smiled back bitterly. And the worst of it is, he knows it. You were right. If he has destroyed the shears, I shall do nothing except begin over again. But I'll stand my watch on board hereafter, I blurted out a moment later. And if he interferes... But I dare not stay ashore all night alone, Maud was saying when I came back to myself. It would be so much nicer if he would be friendly with us and help us. We could all live comfortably aboard. We will, I asserted, still savagely, for the destruction of my beloved shears had hit me hard. That is, you and I will live aboard, 
friendly or not with Wolf Larsen. It's childish, I laughed later, for him to do such things, and for me to grow angry over them, for that matter. But my heart smote me when we climbed aboard and looked at the havoc he had done. The shears were gone altogether. The guys had been slashed right and left. The throat halyards which I had rigged were cut across through every part, and he knew I could not splice. A thought struck me. I ran to the windlass. It would not work. He had broken it. We looked at each other in consternation. Then I ran to the side. The masts, booms, and gaffs I had cleared were gone. He had found the lines which held them and cast them adrift. Tears were in Maud's eyes, and I do believe they were for me. I could have wept myself. Where now was our project of remasting the ghost? He had done his work well. I sat down on the hatch combing and rested my chin on my hands in black despair. He deserves to die, I cried out. And God forgive me, I am not man enough to be his executioner. But Maud was by my side, passing her hand soothingly through my hair, as though I were a child, and saying, There, there, it will all come right. We are in the right, and it must come right. I remembered Michelet, and leaned my head against her, and truly I became strong again. The blessed woman was an unfailing font of power to me. What did it matter? Only a setback, a delay. The tide could not have carried the masts far to seaward, and there had been no wind. It meant merely more work to find them and tow them back. And besides, it was a lesson. I knew what to expect. He might have waited and destroyed our work more effectually when we had more accomplished. Here he comes now, she whispered. I glanced up. He was strolling leisurely along the poop on the port side. Take no notice of him, I whispered. He's coming to see how we take it. Don't let him know that we know. We can deny him that satisfaction. Take off your shoes. That's right. And carry them in your hand. And then we played hide-and-seek with the blind man. As he came up the port side, we slipped past on his starboard, and from the poop we watched him turn and start aft on our track. He must have known somehow that we were on board, for he said, Good morning, very confidently, and waited for the greeting to be returned. Then he strolled aft, and we slipped forward. Oh, I know you're aboard. He called out, and I could see him listen intently after he had spoken. It reminded me of the great hoot owl listening after its booming cry for the stir of its frightened prey. But we did not stir, and we moved only when he moved. And so we dodged about the deck hand in hand like a couple of children chased by a wicked ogre, till Wolf Larsen, evidently in disgust, left the deck for the cabin. There was glee in our eyes, and suppressed titters in our mouths as we put on our shoes and clambered over the side into the boat. And as I looked into Maud's clear brown eyes, I forgot the evil he had done, and I knew only that I loved her, and that because of her, the strength was mine to win our way back to the world. End of chapter 35